0: Okay. It's podcast Sunday. I just finished reading, um, a very long section from Popkin's, uh, book on the French revolution. So I'm a little tired, but it sparked enough ideas that I want to, um, try to get at least, um, you know, maybe thirty. I don't know. We'll see. But at least I want to try to get a podcast out on some of the some of the ideas that I have. Um. So yeah. So let's see. Uh, French Revolution. Is there anything I want to say about that? Yeah. So the uh, <laughs> the, the the French Revolution was a bloody mess. Like, <laughs> how's that? Uh, yeah. It's so. Here's what. Here's what I. I started thinking about. Like um, the. So if you ask, if you went and asked somebody on the street uh, to, you know, give a meaning, like what's the meaning of history or how does history work, I would think. I've never really done this, but um, it's right out front. It's like really, really obvious to see that this is. Um, this is kind of like the current zeitgeist. People will generally espouse something like things are, th- things are difficult, but if we keep working on them, we'll make them better, which it's sort of hard to argue with that, right? Like it's hard to, well, you know, why, the idea that if we put effort into something, it'll get better. I don't think anybody's going to really dispute that, but kind of a little bit more fine-grained, it's something like a qualitative linear model. It's kind of like a building blocks model, all right, it's a qualitative linear is a fancy fancy way of just saying like it's a sim, simple linear model where, uh, you know, you say you have a Model T and you want to make it better. Well, you already have the design for the Model T, and you have various problems uh, in different road conditions. Say like you have different things, different. There are different um, parts of the Model T design that make it very uncomfortable or difficult so you can start working on that and um you can just it just you can see it evolve in a kind of building blocks way right like it's almost you could almost use a darwinian model to explain it like well these are the sorts of things that work over the long term um and so you just end up with a better car frankly a decade later and that's the application of the human mind to nature when you have a design. And so you can use this kind of simple, simple linear model in the context of known, known technology and science. So, you know, look, it just is the case that a Prius is a vastly better vehicle, automobile, right, than a 1950 Chrysler or, a, or a, you know, an even more so a Model T. It just is the case that that's true because our notion of what a car is for has been set. And so it's, it's relatively easy to make an apples-to-apples comparison. Um, you, you know, like, well, this one goes faster with less noise and vibration, holds more people, <laughs> you know, and breaks down less. And since we have the idea of the purpose of, a, of an automobile already pretty set in our mind, in other words, we're not going to use it for a can opener, In which case, I don't know if the Model T would be better or not or a paperweight, right? Uh, We're going to use it for transporting bodies, you know, ours and others from one destination to another, um, you know, as quietly and comfortably and quickly as possible and, you know, and safely as possible. And so it's pretty easy just to observe that that kind of building blocks model works pretty well for technologies that have been designed. Now, there's a couple of problems that immediately surface that, that just end, that cause endless confusion, right? One is that the same that thinking is, as it were, oh, I don't know. I want to take a I wanna use a like a five cent word, not a 25 cent word, but I can't think of one. It's outside, how's that? I was gonna say exogenous. It's sort of outside the building block dynamic. So the how you arrive at Um, not just the model T, not just the, the idea of a car, which is a fairly, a much larger innovation. Once you have a car, then no matter what you do, it's not as large of an innovation as moving in history from no car to car. But even, even given that you have a car, the kind of thinking that makes the car better is generally not the building blocks thinking that you can, that you apply. So when you step and you, when you, When you survey historically the evolution of the automobile, so you step outside time, so to speak, and you look at the development of the automobile, you know, through the 20th century, you can see a building blocks, you know, simple linear model in effect. You can see it getting better as a function of people working on it and, you know, working on other things like new materials and materials, uh, you know, results. From material science that flow in to make better tires and and on and on we go, right? So you can see that if you step outside and you look at it historically, you see the confirmation of the building blocks model. But in, when you're in, when you're at some point in history, when you're actually working on the car, when you're trying to design a better tire or a better engine or something, you're not, you're not actually, you're doing something more. Typically, your progress curve is going to be steeper. If you're allowing something more like tinkering to happen, which is to say, we're not exactly sure what makes the best adhesive, you know, the best tire. We're going to make a bunch of them and we, you know, we're going to spend what seems like a lot of wasted time and money, uh, but you know, we're going to go off in various directions. And so you kind of use, you know, R and D has a real function to, um, to improve, uh, artifacts. In, in technology and and R and D, when done correctly, especially in the early stage, it's very much more a, a Tolstoyan rather than a Napoleonic um, idea, right? So, you know, finding the best material and the best um, the size and configuration for a tire for for a tire for a variety of road conditions is going to be an exercise in tinkering. Probably the steepest progress is going to be made if many different people with different ideas work on that in a community that nonetheless has the same, the same goal. Uh, but, right, okay, so, you know, that being said, once you've decided on that, that new tire and have manufactured one, then it's probably Napoleonic to manufacture another 10 million, right? You want to, at that point, stop tinkering and actually just, you know, um, direct funds and energies and, and, you know, manpower, as it were, uh, to to that goal. So there's a difference between seeing a building of a a simple linear progression in the results of the human mind operating in nature, right? There's a difference between that and actually producing at that, you know, as you're working through this, having the future be unknown, as it were. So being on the, the, the line in history and trying to move forward into an unknown future, it's gonna be vastly more effective to. Um, you're not gonna use a linear model of just extrapolating from what you already know. You're trying to expand what you know, and the future's unknown. And so you've gotta actually do a bunch of false starts and you've gotta tinker with things. So there's, there's a confusion there, like, even though it may be true that you can view history as progressive with respect to technology and science. I just gave you a case for technology. In a second, I'll give you a case for science. Even though that's true, it doesn't imply that that's how we should do that. We should organize our research and development, or our innovation, or our you know our view towards um, you know creating a better future. We shouldn't do, necessarily do that in a building blocks manner, uh, you know, because that's not going to be ideal. So there's two two ideas going on there with the with um, measurement with what we're trying to measure. Uh, the, I, okay, so science is, um, well, I mean, this is fairly obvious as well. I mean, Kuhn notwithstanding, which by the way, I mean, I don't think Kuhn was right, actually. Uh, so, and I, I think people really, really misunderstood what Kuhn was saying. Um, so there is definitely, an invar- there are invariants in science that survive whatever subjectivity and whatever paradigm and the paradigm does not actually lock science in so categorically as he claimed, but we don't need to get into that for, for our purposes. Um, so in, in, you know in science, it's fairly easy to see that, look, you know rel- let's just take the obvious example. Relativity actually accounts for the causal consequences of gravity. In other words, you can use relativity to predict phenomena under a gravitational. Uh, you know, under gravity, under the force of gravity at um, outside on the extremes of the very large and the very small, you can, you can use, you can use um, uh, special and general relativity uh, to make predictions about things. So for instance, if you, you know, a beam of light going by the sun is going to be bent or curved uh, and Eddington actually proved this back in 19 something, you know, Twenty something, actually proved. Oh yeah, like the predictions of relativity are you know the the natural world actually shows the numbers that you would expect if relativity was true, not Newtonian mechanics. And so, at at some scale, the very not the very small, but the very fast and the very large. So, at some scale, uh, Einstein's theories of special and then general relativity actually do and prove upon even the great gravitational theory of Isaac Newton in the 17th century, right? So there's a sense in which you can say that we're we're actually accumulating scientific knowledge and that knowledge is leading to better and better and more and more powerful prediction. And so in that sense, actually the building block model applies not just to technology, but it also applies to the doing of science um, and you, you have to start this, by the way, at roughly the scientific revolution. <laughs> so, you know, before the scientific revolution, it's not clear that you can say that you, you might have some incommensurability saying that um, Democritus was better than Lucretius or something. Right. Uh, because the, there's a sense in which both had infected philosophical or aesthetic considerations in what should have been a pure you know only only empirical observation counts is the iron rule of science and and so but you know once you get that once and re- really it was newton who really understood that even though it it actually hadn't been written down or formally inculcated until you know the royal society in london i think eventually did that it was on the, you know, Newton's in the, some of his later, in a footnote, I think famously in the 1690s or 1691 or something, he said, you know, everything should be accounted, but what, you know, but what doesn't show up in experiment. um, And yeah, every, everything should be abandoned, right? Except for what doesn't show up in experiment. And so, so if you start there and then you look, you can actually do a kind of apples to apples, like you can with the automobile. You can see that science gets better. So I think um, I think that's all true, but it doesn't mean that we should behave as if it's happening. <laughs> in other words, it only happens because we think because we're non linearly tinkering. And then something like progress occurs, right? Um, And so the other point is that I think it's safe to say that society in general does not benefit from the same kind of simple uh, linear model that we can apply in other words, uh, I don't think that on both scores, I think that the improvement of society is a different thought than what I've just, I've just outlined for science and technology. So both that what we can serve and what we tinker is going to be decidedly different for large questions about society and culture. And also that you can't read, I don't think it's, I certainly don't read myself. I don't read into history, um, the onward and upward thesis. I think that's actually extremely misleading. Um, and it's very easy to fall into it. And and I think here's one of the, the kind of sociological or even psychological reasons why it's so easy to fall into the, the kind of building blocks or simple, simple linear model thinking about society as a whole. Um, I think that's, that's basically going to be true because of the predominance and the success, you know, the the, the 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 success story, this kind of Super Bowl, you know, you know, trophy winning outcome of modern society is the is technology, not you know, withstanding nuclear war and pollution and so on. And there's this you know, whole other story to be told there. Uh, But, you know, like most people do get that it probably wouldn't be a lot of fun to live live in the Middle Ages. Right. And, you know, it wouldn't be fun to get rheumatic fever from a, a small infection in your throat and then die horribly a few weeks later and nobody can do anything for you. In fact, they're bleeding you or doing something that's making you sicker. Um, you know there 's just endless ways that you could you know you can make the case that 's been made so many times before that it would be better to live in relative poverty in the United States in two thousand and twenty two than it would to be a king in the thirteenth century and I think that 's probably true although i i 'm not sure it might be fun to be a king anyway but you 'd have to have a lot of luck on your side that so you don 't end up you know medically compromised at the age of thirty or you know just living in you know, constant fear of getting invaded or whatever it is. But, you know, it's probably, that's probably true. And, you know, the average person living on the street or there were, you know, living in a village or the, you know, living in probably in, in some kind of servitude would be more likely life was poor, nasty, brutish, and short, most definitely. Um, and again, you know, notwithstanding some anthropologists who you know take issue with that in the very distant past, certainly when you're talking about the Middle Ages and you know this you know this kind of thing, it's like I think definitely things have gotten it's gotten better. So that's that's not what that's not what what uh, I'm talking about, though. What I'm talking about is overall. Yes, medical. So just to reiterate, yes, there are, you can point and notice that all the things that are getting better are generally connected to technology, right? So medical, the reason it's so much better to be alive today than it was back then. And I mean, I, some some people wouldn't be as uh, quick to say this, by the way, but I'll go ahead and grant the point so I can make the, the point I want to get to. But, you know, it's the technology basically is and science has made a huge difference in the quality of life. And it's pretty hard to ignore that. It's pretty hard to deny it. So you can say that. But the application of tech and science thinking to the broader project of improving society is probably has limits where the simple linear model is going to create all kinds of unintended consequences in other words it probably doesn't fit that you know technology we can ha- we can apply a building block te- model to technology and so we can apply that to to culture and society as well if that were true then the you know like it w- you couldn't say it couldn't even it wouldn't even make sense it wouldn't, you wouldn't even, wouldn't even be able to make the argument with a straight face that maybe rome was a better society than the fragments of its destruction in Western Europe, which came to be known as the dark ages were right because the dark ages came after Rome. And so for a hundred, for centuries, the world was probably worse on, on any scale that you want to imagine. It was probably better to live in Rome than it was to live in the, you know, in the 14th century in, in what's now Germany. Um, so you know, like, and that that wouldn't be true. It's it's never really been the case that we went into a period of thirty years of cars getting worse than the Model D, right? I mean, they, the, the the onward and upward thing really does apply to technology, but it's very unclear that it applies to society writ large. And so I think that's a big mistake. And one of the reasons we make that mistake is because to return to the thread, we ha- we can see so clearly the benefits and the improvements in technology, that we are too quick. It's almost like a cognitive bias. We are too quick to extrapolate from that case to assume that everything works that way. So that if we just apply our mind to the problem, we'll solve the problem just like we built a better car, right? And, and, so, you know, and so if you try to apply that to society at large, you, you, you run into a bunch of problems. One, it's probably a bad, simplistic, and dangerous model To, we don't see that really in effect. I mean, yes, things are better. I would say, you know, now that we have constitutional governments, you know, things are better today. There's certain things that you can point to It's like probably better than the monarchy and, and so on. If you take technology out of it and you look just in the sphere of, of society as, you know, an organization of, you know, society as society rather than as a commentary on technology, um, you can see that certain things are better, you know, that's true, but there are many, many things that don't make sense in the simple way that the car got better. It doesn't seem like that's the way society works, right? So you can have a golden or a classic age, and then you can have a period of centuries where it's actually arguably, at least by all the history that we have, (laughs) probably worse, (laughs) right? And so, um, And then you have, you know, a Renaissance where, uh, curiously, the Renaissance was both a period of moving forward and moving back. So Plutarch actually uncovered the classics again. He sort of rediscovered, oh, we should probably start reading Aristotle and Plato and, you know, the Greek tragedies and so on. And then the next thing you know, we have Shakespeare, right? And so, like, but you see in there a very, whatever the model is, it's not linear in the simple way right? Like whatever's going on with society, you could make the case that it's a spiral and we're going like Vico. I'm interested in this guy, Vico now, because his theory of history, he was an enlightenment figure who was critical of the enlightenment and wrote in relative obscurity. And, but he was kind of discovered later, I suppose in the romantic period, because he had these, he had these kind of anti-enlightenment views, but one of his, one of his Core ideas was what really what I'm saying, which is the Enlightenment just supposes everything's going to get better. But he's, you know, he said history actually moves in a circle or a spiral. He never made it clear because one of because he was in the he was in the Holy Roman, he was in the era of the Holy Roman Church, and so I, I can't remember which one it is. It's probably, I think it's probably the circle. I'm not sure, but one of them is against is not, it's not, it's, it's against scripture. So you can't say it. It's like blasphemy. So he's deliberate. I think he, nobody knows why, but probably he deliberately left it ambiguous as to whether it's a spiral. And every time you go around, you get a little bit better, or whether it's a kind of circle in the Nietzschean, you know, return, eternal recurrence sense. But he, 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 he said explicitly in either case that it wasn't it wasn't a simple linear progression that that was a big mistake. And it was the mistake that the Enlightenment figures were making. And, you know, he, so he had, he explained, look, you know, in his mind, you start with a kind of mythical understanding, which actually is very cohesive. And he was one of the first thinkers, by the way, and this is fascinating to me, who put out the idea that people think differently in different eras. It's not, it's not, surface level stuff that's going on. It's not just that you have different tech and, you know, different medicine and so on. It's like you actually think about the world differently in different eras. And so in this kind of early pre-rational mythical era, you might think of this as like the Homeric or the heroic era, uh, how they communicated and how they thought and what kept the society together was actually was completely different. And uh, it's too much to get into, and um but from there, you go into a kind of personal era where uh, I can't remember what he calls this now but it's basically what we think of as the Enlightenment, which is we we discover basically that we can apply reason and rationality, and we can treat each other as individuals, and then we can build up basically what amounts to systems around this new way of thinking and then but what he said famously and i think provocatively was that the very act of doing the rational project atomizes the society such that you begin to get you know you begin to see the downfall from the very from the very move out of the mythic which is an improvement right he's not claiming that we should go back to the mythic he's saying like we get out of this and then we get into the rational mode where, you know, we would say you have human rights and so on. But the ver- but from the very act of thinking this way, you start to uh, erode the myth- mythical cohesion. And then you, so you end up in eternal kind of squabbles and selfishness. And I'm thinking like, oh, you mean like right now on Twitter, like, you know, <laughs> where everybody, like everybody's hyper virtuous and hyper vigilant and, you know, rights and everything are just, everybody's inflamed, to you know, to make these you know all these points, but it's actually just just like he said. It's actually in the in in the long run, or even in the mid mid run, it's going to amount to a you know a, a worsening and a coarsening of culture. And so he he claimed that societies go through these three phases endlessly. And the question is, is do we learn anything along the way? Well, here's. Here's an argument for reading your history rather than dismissing it. The only way I can see that it would be a spiral rather than a circle is if you actually learned lessons from previous civilizations, which means take them seriously, study them, and make sure that you don't apply, you know, too modern of a rubric so that you can actually uncover what they were thinking, how they solved problems. And, you know, with that additional knowledge, I think you have at least the the beginning of or you you have at least a kind of foundation upon which to stand to say you know we're going to go through these phases if you're a vico you know if you believe in vico had a germ of truth here maybe you think yeah it's not linear we're going to go through these phases and they actually curve so that we start out bad or different and then we end up you know not just better linearly but sort of you know we went through better and now we're getting worse again and we're going to end up somewhere back. But yeah, again, like if you read, like if, if there's a robust, and this was the, by the way, this was the Renaissance innovation was to say, looking backwards can be as progressive as looking forwards. That was the great re, The rediscovery of the classic world was one of the great triumphs of the Renaissance of the hum, of the humanistic Renaissance was like the, celebration of the literature that had been lost in the dark ages. And so, uh, okay. So back to the point, um, I am very skeptical that today we extrapolate from science and technology thinking to societal and cultural thinking. And the move is invalid and unwise. Okay. That's my, that's major, major point. Um, the second point is because you have a larger, in terms of the actual lifespan of a technology versus a whole society, they're going to be different, right? I mean, the the lifespan, this all depends on framing, of course, but typically technologies emerge and disappear or are so radically modified that they become different technologies while society has had less change. That's usually the case, right? So... um, it's funny, actually, that, um, <laughs> well, look, <laughs> it's more complicated. It's not a one-sided analysis. It's actually double-sided. So uh, you can say, I think, with some confidence that social change or societies in general as a, you know, think of society like Think of the society as almost like an organism and think of the technology as almost like an organism. So when is it born and when does it die? That's a, that's a kind of helpful way, I think, to think about this. And so if you go back far enough, technological change was actually very slow. And um, it could be the case that you had societies changing, the, the, that people were experimenting very, very far back in history. They were experimenting with different kinds of social change that was actually happening faster in history than the actual tech changes. So you'd have the same tech, but different gangs and different organizations and so on. It's possible. I'm not enough of a, of a anthropologist to really, um, you know, to be able to weigh in on that, but certainly in the modern era, you see very rapid technology innovation and, you know, the constitution of the gov- you know, the government of the United States, the constitution, has been amended but it's effectively the same as it was it was 300 years ago right and you know 300 years ago the the new you know the atom bomb or the you know the 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 rocket that goes to the moon you know apollo 8 or whatever whatever that is apollo 16 (laughs) like this kind of thing like the same constitution with amendments with you know with tinkering with fixes here and there just completely different technologies so from that, it makes sense that you wouldn't apply the same thoughts to how do I change society as how do I change technology? Because their, their lives and deaths their, are actually different. Their lifespans are different. Like one is a fruit fly and the other is an elephant or a blue whale. And so, yeah, you probably, there's different thinking that goes in. So I think that's another of the the kind of modern conceit is to take something that's really successful and then try to shoehorn it in to all these other questions where it just doesn't fit. And you're going to get in trouble if you do this, you're going to have unintended consequences. You could make, now we're at 30, you could make the argument that the French revolution was an exercise in almost technological tinkering. And um, you know, whatever you want to say about the, the, the eventual emergence of the rights of man, right? The, the, the positive things that came out of the French Revolution. I don't think anybody would be particularly happy to be uh, <laughs> in the midst of that uh, revolution in France between 1789 and, you know, really all the, up to Napoleon. And so, uh, you know, it was just a period of profound and really atrocious uh, bloodshed. And there was a, there was a sense in which, you know, things had become unmoored in a way. Right. And so, but that, you know, that's a very extreme example of how you wouldn't tinker with, (laughs) with the entire right structure of the society. But I think um, even kind of not using that radical example to make the point even if you want to just leave that to the side um, the idea that you're going to fix, right? Like be group behavior, you know, collective behavior, government, um, all kinds of problems with privacy, inequality and so on. Like the idea that that stuff is going to be fixed in the, in the same basic way that you're going to make progress in science and Technology seems really dubious. So, what you're going to preserve is going to be different. You certainly preserve in science and tech. You hold on to the blueprints and the results from the past, and then you try to, you know, you then you try to discover afresh and so on and build upon. But I mean, I think that the the idea that you would you that you would piggyback that seems really backwards. And the only, you know, I think it's 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 almost like not to sound Nietzschean, but I think it's almost a kind of disease or a you know, a mark of, un, you know, of dis-ease or, you know, bad. <laughs> it's a mark of an unhealthy culture that, that you would take something so disparate and try to, you, you know, to make that case. So if you sort of Socratically take the person on the street, the hypothetical person on the street through this exercise, my hope would be at the end of it, they would say, yeah, like things just aren't getting better in the way that the Model T got better and eventually became whatever, the Tesla, right? That's not how this is working. We might be making everything shittier today, right? The, 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 like quite, quite possibly, everything's getting worse, not everything in the logical sense, but things that really matter to us, like social cohesion, democracy, and so on, they all might be getting worse right now. Whereas the Model T, the cars can't really do that. You know, that's the kind of reductio ad absurdum of using the same thing. So if that's the case and things are, really are getting worse right now, maybe Vico is right. And maybe we're in that third phase of atomization and discontent where the civilization actually start and starts to weaken. And that period of, you know, the 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 rational has, you know, actually brought about yet again, the seeds of its own unraveling, right? Or destruction. And so, you know, it's entirely possible that we're in a bad period of history right now. Um, And so, you know, the question is, what do you do? It's like, well, you (laughs) try, this is gonna sound weaselly, but I don't know what else to say and I'll leave it at this. You try to get at the truth and speak it as powerfully and as clearly as you can. And that's all you can, that's all I can do at any rate. And I think it's not a bad place to start for, for anyone.